Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch and I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute. I hope you're all staying safe and well wherever you are in the world. Today my guest is Jolie Chisholm, the Vice Chair of GB Climbing's Competition Climbing and Performance Group and the Executive Director at the Boat Race Company. Amongst her numerous exploits, Jolie is also an endurance runner and so I was keen to chat to her about the concept of being present, being in the zone and resilience, all topics relevant to you and your athletes in some shape or form, I'd wager. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to let you know about what we've got coming up at the Leaders Performance Institute. On the 24th of March, we have our first Leaders Meet event of the year at Cardiff's Principality Stadium. The theme is coach and player development, and we'd love to welcome as many of our members as possible. If you'd like to attend and you're not a member, please inquire about joining our membership at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Before that event, on Tuesday the 8th of March, we are running a virtual roundtable titled State of Play in Player Development, Opportunities and Challenges. Then there's our next Leadership Skills Series session on Thursday 17th of March, which focuses on people development. Sign up for those now if you're a Leaders Performance Institute member. That's all the housekeeping, and now on with the show, where I began by asking Jolie about her background as a sports person, which covers many disciplines. In terms of sport, I've been doing some kind of sport ever since I can remember. I think it started when I was about three, when my grandfather turned up in our backyard with a little black Shetland pony called Sally, and that was the start. And now, over 40 years later, I'm still competing, albeit not in the sport I started with, which was a question. And um, John, as you can see, because you can see me, I'm quite tall. So through school and university, I've been pulled in and out of sports. So I remember being pulled into playing netball, and that was a real uh, love of my life for about 10 years through school and university. Then at university, um, I was pulled into rowing against my will, I have to say, but then I moved into rowing and that is still a love of mine. And I met my husband through rowing as well. And then I had an injury when I was rowing, which meant I had to change tack a bit. So I kind of went back to my equestrian roots and had a bit of a go at modern pentathlon. But I was living in London at the time and trying to juggle five sports in London was quite difficult. So it morphed into triathlon. And then I did that for a while, got to age group level, represented both Great Britain and Australia age group level. And when I had children, I struggled to fit in the three disciplines. So I stuck with the running, but also living in Sydney, I think it was too hard not to get into something on the water to explore the harbours and waterways in Sydney from a viewpoint that not a lot of people get to see. So I did a lot of stand-up paddleboarding and raced in that, but again, kept the running going. And I just think running is so time efficient and for me is almost like meditation. Once I get my shoes on and out the door and can hear my footfalls and hear the world around me, then I can quite easily get transported into another world. So hence expanding my running repertoire and going on to do some ultra races more recently. And speaking of those ultra races, perhaps you can talk about the Lakeland 50. Yeah. And perhaps provide our listeners with some of the details around that for those who may not be aware of it. Yeah. So the Lakeland 50, the first thing I'm going to say 
is it's one half of the Lakeland 100, which is arguably one of the UK's most iconic trail, ultra trail races. The Lakeland 50 goes from Dale, Maine, which is just on the outskirts of the Lake District National Park. It is actually where I was born and grew up in the Lake District. So going back to do this race was actually an opportunity to explore on foot parts of the world that I'd only ever seen on horseback, looking at them from afar before. So like I said, it starts in Dale, Maine, winds its way up and down and some very up and some very down all the way to Coniston. And there were definitely some areas that, of the race that I was very, very familiar with, um, family holidays and things, school trips there, and some other areas where if you didn't know they were there, you just wouldn't know they were there. It was incredible. And the weather was so kind to us that day as well. It was just absolutely spectacular. It's those ultra races that I really wanted to ask you about. And we spoke before about the concept of being present. Yeah. I wondered if you could describe what being present means to you and how it helps assist your performance. I think I want to just take us back a little bit because as I spoke earlier, I mentioned that getting out the door and getting my shoes on and getting into nature allows me to fall into a different headspace. And I find it really meditative. So the whole reason I decided to take part in the Lakeland 50 was running had been a process that had helped me through the most difficult part of my life so far. And I moved back from Australia in March 2020, right before the lockdown, because my mum was terminally ill. And this was a real chance to reconnect with my family here in the UK and particularly my sister in Cumbria and she's a really good sports person too and running again had been something that had kept her quite sane as well so we were doing it together and there was a challenge to run the Lakeland 50 and it was virtual because of lockdown so at this point coronavirus had hit and my mum had lost her battle with cancer at this point and passed away. And to help us both through the grief process, this was something we did together. So we did the Lakeland 50 on a virtual challenge over seven days. And we were going great guns till day four. And then I think we were on a 20 kilometer run on day four and we both looked at each other and went, oh, surely this would be easier to do in a single day. And the seed was sown to do the Lakeland 50 for real in one go. At this point, I not even run an ultra. I ran my first ultra 50 kilometers, the Chiltern Ridge um, ultra run in the pouring rain. So this was definitely something that I'd never done before. The training for the actual Lakeland 50 was real therapy. It really was. And at this point, you couldn't make this stuff up. My dad had also been diagnosed with terminal cancer too. So the trips up and down from where me and my family were based up and down to Cumbria were made bearable by doing run reckeys of the course. And I loved every minute of it and was really excited about 
doing the race, despite the situation that I was in. So this ability to go up to Cumbria, running the Lake District, one of the most beautiful parts of the world, and be able to clear my head of everything that was going on was really effective at being present. And I think it made me value being present and being grateful for what I had way more than anything I'd ever done before. So yeah, being present is what got me through that race and through that period of time. And it's something I've really tried to build it much more of in my everyday life. Do you feel that it helped to separate the different aspects of your character, say the competitor from the mother, the wife, the daughter? It did, and it still does. I think now I really appreciate that even more. And I think we all have different roles that we play in life, and we all want to enjoy each of those roles. And to do so, we need to give ourselves the space to be present in each of those roles. Best endeavors, isn't it? I do try, it's not perfect. And sometimes I'll find myself out running thinking, oh my goodness, the children have got this school trip and this after school activity and this something else and realize that I haven't been present in my running or vice versa. But um, I think as long as you keep trying and striving for it, the positive benefits to me and I'm sure everyone else have been enormous. And how important was it to keep the task in mind in terms of your preparations and getting ready for the race? How important was it to be aware of exactly what was expected and what was needed? This was something I'd never done before. I'm a bit of a planner, so I do like to plan and kind of know a bit about what's going on. And I'd A, never run 50 miles and B, never done it in the Lake District. So they were two areas I needed, well, that I wanted to bring my knowledge up. And I remember one of my good friends who's done a lot of ultra running as well, One thing he said to me was, there's nothing to prepare you for running in the lakes like running in the lakes. And that really stuck with me and did it. And fortunately, it had a double benefit for me in that it made those very difficult trips to go up and care for my dad much easier knowing that I had this to look forward to as well. Well, with everything that was going on in your life at that time, How did the notion of being present help you in that battle between mental and physical depletion? Oh, it was absolutely key. Um, I think it's been a working progress of mine for quite some time and this really brought it to the forefront. I think people always talk about enjoying the journey and making sure you follow the process and that will lead to the outcome. And I think that was absolutely key for me. And I think the week before the race, I had a bit of an epiphany because up until the race, like I said, it was the first time I'd done anything like this. Up to the race, I was going really, really well. And then I had a big, I had an increase in volume in my training and arguably, it was too much and also arguably I didn't manage it that well with everything else that was going on and so as I came into the race I was carrying a number of niggles 
I called them niggles because that's how I kept it framed in my mind so I could continue to be positive about it. But um, I think the Saturday before when I actually couldn't stand up straight because my back was so sore, there was a bit of a moment of, oh my goodness, am I going to get to the start line? And I think I just took a moment and looked back on everything I'd been through and realized that my journey for the Lakeland 50 wasn't starting, standing on the start line. I'd already done it. The whole fact to get on the start line was the outcome of a journey I'd been undertaking for the past two years. And I think I really realized that if I stood on that start line, I'd achieved so much and gone through such a big process that every single step I took from the start line towards the finish line was a bonus. And I think once I'd reframed it like that, it took all the mental pressure off. And I walked into the starting pen with just this sense of calm and peacefulness. And to <laughs> another phrase from another ultra runner, Katie Arnold was, um, show me. I had a real sense of just show me, let's, let's just see one foot in front of the other off that start line. If I can run, I'll run. If I can't, that's okay. If I get a hundred meters to the end of where everyone's parked and have to stop, that's okay. And if I get to the finish line, that's okay too. So I think a big part of me actually getting to the finish line was taking that mental pressure off myself. And before getting to the finish line, your work with your coach, Kim Collison, mm -hmm. why was that the missing piece of the jigsaw for you? And why did he decide that he could work with you? So oh, Kim's an amazing person. So Kim is a Great Britain ultra runner. He holds fastest known times for many, many things, number of Munros bagged in 24 hours and many other things that I won't be able to remember here. Um, and he's just such a kind soul. He's also hugely intrinsically motivated. He does his running for no one else but himself. And that's very much like I am. And I think that really helped uh, his understanding of me. I'm not sure why he decided to work with me. I was quite pushy. I think I rang him a number of times when he said, I'll be in touch in the new year. And I think I rang him four times in between. I also think he thought I had an interesting background and maybe he would have an opportunity to learn from me as well along the process. Because I'd been involved in a number of sports to a reasonable level. My husband is an Olympian, so I've been through that journey with him too. And maybe he just thought he had something to learn from me. But our conversations, well, when we were preparing for the race, always started about the training program and feedback and the next phase and pretty much what you'd expect. They always ended up massively wide ranging with what books we were reading at that time or what podcasts we were listening to, or have you heard about the work of this person or that person? And um, even though I've been managing some injuries recently and not working with him as closely, we still keep in contact and have these hugely wide ranging conversations. And what's the difference between accepting a point that he has to make or pushing back 
I mean, will you ever go against your instincts and trust his or is there that much distinction in the first place? I think while we were going through the process, I was very aware that he'd done a lot of ultra running in the lakes. He lives in the lakes and therefore knew a lot about those areas. And that was the gap in my knowledge. I think I know my body really well. So I think there were points through the process where in hindsight, we would both look at it and think, hmm, I, there's certainly points where I think I should have pushed back there, particularly the volume increase, because I'd not done that quantity of purely running before. I'd done that quantity of training in triathlon, but it's three disciplines and two of them are a bit kinder on your body than running is. But at that point, I'd invested in him being my coach and I did trust him. So I was going to do what he said. Um, I think now we have a relationship where he'll ask me what do you think or i will say we'll try it and reconnect and i'll give you the feedback so it's much more a work in progress i think also i mean for a coach to be working with someone who's going through the emotional stress that i was going through at the time I'm not sure there are many coaches out there who would know how to factor that into a training program because the effect on an athlete is so unknown and everyone's so different. I think it really is. You just have to adapt and change as you go on. And we talk about trust in the process, but where does the line sit for you between trusting what works and tweaking things that don't? What's the difference between a bad day at the office and a genuine need to change things up? Yeah. So I think one of my real strengths as an athlete is knowing how to receive feedback from my body. I know I've I've pushed it to its limits a lot of times over the years and made it do a lot of things that I wasn't sure it could do. And so now I trust my body and I therefore trust the feedback it gives me. And I think everyone's body gives them feedback. It's whether you're prepared to listen to that feedback and receive that feedback and know how to receive that feedback. And I think I'm really good at that. I remember reading Chrissy Wellington's book and she was talking about that. I think she does it really well. And there was something I took away from there and thought, actually, I'm not bad at that either. So for me, the feedback is the difference between tweaking things up and having a bad day at the office. I do collect data not too much I think you can get overwhelmed I think sometimes the data is important to back up what you're feeling so there was a point when I was injured and I thought oh my goodness I haven't run for ages so looking back over my training logs something as simple as that was really helpful to actually recognize that I'd actually only run last week (laughs) and a week wasn't that long an amount of time. I think what I will say is that I'm a big believer in you've got to have all your basics right before you go chasing your one percenters. So I work on putting all the 80 to 90% in place and having that right first before I start tweaking tweaking the one percenters because it's all too easy to start going after those bright and shiny one percenters, but they're not going to make a difference if you haven't got your foundations in place. And I presume that self-reflection is big for you as well. 
Yeah, really big. Um, we spoke about being present earlier. I have a very active brain. <laughs> um, sometimes I struggle to switch off. So um, yeah, self-reflection is something I would say I do it a lot. Occasionally it turns into rumination, which is not as helpful. But um, yeah, self-reflection is definitely something that I do a lot of and I'm working, still working on doing that in a really kind and compassionate way as well to make it more valuable for me. Sticking with that theme, in the past, you've spoken about the importance of recovery, which can be compromised in any number of ways. Sometimes it's well-meaning, such as when you receive an emotional uplift, but is it about being kinder to yourself as you've been saying? Yeah, absolutely. For me, recovery is far, far more affected by the emotional than the physical. I've, uh, I think this is just fascinating case studies for anyone because I've seen it in other athletes too. I've done some of my personal best performances off the back of the heaviest training loads. But when I look back on why that might be, I've realized that my emotional load is really low, but I've had terrible performances off the back of really big tapers. But if my emotional load has been really high or I haven't managed it, then that's when I've had really bad performances. So definitely for me, my biggest performance impact and, and therefore my biggest impact on recovery is definitely mental rather than physical. And I wanted to move on to the question of being in the zone, flow states. Can you describe your experiences of being in the zone? How has it manifested in different ways in the different sports that you've pursued in the past? And were there any commonalities between them? I have experienced flow a number of times. I think the first couple of times I experienced it, I had no idea what it was. I was quite young, but having experienced it later, you say about the commonalities, the things that are the same is what made me recognize it was the same thing. So the thing for me that's the same is just feeling in this different state of consciousness that all that matters is what's immediately around you. I think the first time I experienced it, I was a young teenager show jumping on a brilliant pony I had called Compass and just feeling like the hoof pints were painted on the floor. We were flying over the jumps. We had all the time in the world, nothing else mattered. I couldn't hear anything. I remember my dad used to say to me every time I'd go in the ring and show jump, he said, didn't you hear all that music they were playing? It was terrible. I said, music? They were playing music? What are you talking about? So um, I always knew there was something different going on. I just put it down to, you have to concentrate quite hard when you're riding quite a large animal that has a brain of its own and you have to navigate a course of obstacles that you've got to get over. Um, so I had that a couple of times when I was show jumping. The other one that really stands out, and this was different again, was actually when I was rowing. It was the, I'm going to show my age now, the 1999 head of the river, women's head of the river. And we were in an eight. I was rowing for Tideway Scholar School. We were in an eight. We drafted in one of the country's top coxes to help 
Coxus. We had an aspiring Great Britain rower, Debbie Flood, in our crew at that time. And the rest of us were just club rowers. We were all pretty good at what we did. We were club rowers, but the sum of our parts was far greater than it should have been. When we got in that boat together, something really special happened. And our club captain recognized that. And he actually got got some donors together and bought us a new boat, which we competed in this race. I do not remember that race. The only thing I remember is the Cox's call con- coming under Hammersmith Bridge, where he said, turn the screw. That's the only thing I remember about that race. I have no idea how long it took. All I knew was I loved it. I didn't feel tired when I finished, but after we turned around and put our warm kit on to row back up to our boathouse, I felt exhausted, utterly exhausted, but elated. And we got back to the boathouse and the whole club came out to meet us and said, you were third, you were third. And the only crews that had beaten us were the two Great Britain crews at the time and we were a club crew. And, and so that was a complete other state of consciousness. And then I think doing triathlon when I won my age group at the Port Macquarie Half Ironman, as they were called then. Another common theme with the Lakeland 50 was that I'd been, I'd had a cold the week before, so had just rested, uh, did the race. It was absolutely pouring down. I remember putting my wetsuit on in an underground car park, standing in water up to my knees and just bursting out in fits of laughter thinking, what am I doing? And I made a decision to put a windproof uh, gilet on for the bike because it was cold and windy. And I think once I got onto the run, that that was my real savior because there were lots of very blue people on the run, I remember. But I remember on that as well, no sense of time, just enjoying the process one step at a time. Is it time for me to eat? Yes, so I'll eat. Is it time for me to drink? Yes, so I'll drink. And finishing, and the commentator coming up to me at the end and giving me this massive hug saying, how did it feel to win? I'm like, what? What? What What are you talking about? I just, I really enjoyed that race. That was fantastic. So definitely some commonalities and similar the Lakeland 50, that was the fastest 13 hours, 40 minutes of my life. Just putting one foot in front of the other. So all of those experiences you describe, you were experiencing a flow state, you were in the zone. Is there a mm-hmm. distinction between those two in your, in your view? Um, this was a really interesting question and you're gonna make me say a name that I can't pronounce. So I'm just gonna say his first name, Mihaly, the, the, um, the guy who has done all the research and came up with the term being in the flow. I think I looked this up. Technically, I don't think there's a difference. From my experience, I would say there is a difference. For me, being in the zone is a precursor to being in flow. And you kind of, for me, I'm aware of going into the zone and being in the zone, but you kind of move into flow. If you do, and for me, I haven't always, it it just happens. And it's only kind of when you come out of flow that you realize you've been in it. So that's how, 
I would describe it. It's this flow is this other state of consciousness and being in the zone is kind of the precursor of where you recognize you're really focused on your present, you're aware of where you are in the process, you know what the next step is and that's all you're focused on at the time. Um, whereas flow is just this other state of consciousness. I sound all a bit woo-woo, don't I? Um, but that's how it's manifested for for me. <laughs> And does it happen by accident? Are there things you can do to stimulate it? So I think I was always aware of the classic two factors, which are challenge versus skill. And there's got to be that optimal balance between your skill level and the challenge that the task ahead presents. I went and looked at this as well. And interestingly, the learning of skills, the setting up with goals, provide feedback and make control possible, which is apparently what makes it being in the zone or flow. I think what's really interesting, and this has definitely been a factor for me, is that competition can both enhance flow because competition is a distinct state and sport allows you to set up all these things, learning skills, setting goals, providing feedback, and trying to control what you can control. They're all very common themes that every coach and athlete is very aware of in sport. Um, but competition can become a distraction. And I thought it was really interesting that rather than incentive to focus on what you're doing and your process, you can focus on what everyone else is doing and their process. So I think people describe that a lot about controlling the controllables um, and you can only control what you do. It's a lot harder to control what everyone else is doing. And I think also that resonates with taking the mental pressure off yourself. I think if you just accept you can only control what you can control and you take that pressure off yourself and you accept where you are, then you can enter this zone state and just go through the motions, follow the process and have really good outcomes. I've always been fascinated to look at. I have a few friends and some people I've coached who've gone on to become professional athletes in different sports and looking at their journeys and when they've done the same. So for example, coming back from quite severe injuries and they've had some of the best results of their career. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating area. And what about the inner voice, the self-talk? Is it a help? Is it a hindrance? I think it's both. I think it depends how you manage it. I think as soon as you, perhaps for me, if I'm in the zone and if I go, oh, I'm in the zone, sometimes that brings me right out of it. Whereas other times I can just drop back into that state of mind. It's like going to sleep, isn't it? You can wake up and go, oh, I was nearly asleep there and then just conk out. Or you can go, oh, I was nearly asleep there and now I'm wide awake and I'm still wide awake and I'm wide awake. <laughs> so I think it's it can be quite similar. I talk about my inner voice being an inner critic or an inner coach. And I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So my inner critic, she can be quite loud. And I work quite hard on turning her into my inner coach. I've done quite a lot of work on this and it's still a work in progress. I think, you know, everyone's different and everyone has a tendency to be one or the other more self-critical or not but I think there are productive ways of giving yourself constructive feedback um, and reframing pr 
problems, issues, things you want to get better at. And as we move towards the end of our conversation, I wanted to turn the focus towards resilience. Let's really just start there. Mm -hmm. What do you understand by the term resilience? So for me, it's the ability to cope with what's in front of you. Interestingly, I looked up the dictionary definition and there was a really good word in there about elasticity. So if you talk about resilience in terms of a substance or an object, it's about its ability to spring back into shape. So elasticity. So I think it's about dealing with what's in front of you and then bringing yourself back to some kind of normal state. And I've come across research that suggests that resilience is found in a balance between protective factors and stresses, that your protective factors need to outweigh your stresses. So I'm keen to ask you, Jolie, what are some of your common protective factors that help to guard your well-being and some of the common stresses that impact your performance? Yeah, definitely. And um, stress can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? So if we have our protective factors right, then stress can be a really positive positive outcome. For me, my protective measures are turning my inner critic into my inner coach, continuing to work on that, being outside and in nature. I think remembering that I am a very small part of a very big and powerful world out there. Uh, Like I said before, I have a very active brain, so I need to factor in some downtime where my brain has at least an opportunity to switch off. I really enjoy spending time with people who have common goals to mine. That doesn't mean we think the same. It means our goals are similar. And one thing that's come to light recently that I hadn't really recognized is how much I enjoy giving and enabling others to be the best that they can be. And for me, that's about just trying to share positively and in a curious way my experiences through my life and how they've helped me and just share those as an offering that maybe this is something you could try and it might help you or maybe it really isn't it doesn't bother me but the fact that I've been given the opportunity to to give some of my experience, which may enable someone to be better tomorrow than they are today, is a real protective factor for me. That's that's quite a new one for me. Stresses, like I said, I find emotional stress far more of a stress than physical stress. So if my family are unsettled, so the children are unsettled, or my husband is unsettled, or other families, members are unsettled. I find that a real stressor. And having said physical stress is not as much. Injury is a stressor for me. I think that's where my inner critic comes out. And so I need to work on how I manage injury. And I think it's a lot about being patient with it. (laughs) What about steps you've taken to build your resilience and how much is built into your training? How much of it is organic? So I think if you have good resilience as a person, you'll have good resilience in your sporting endeavors. And I think um, what we've seen recently is a real move towards being resilient as a person rather than just being resilient in your sporting endeavors. So for me, that notion of one step at a time, putting one front 
in front of the other. How do you climb Everest? You put one foot in front of the other. You just keep going. There's some great examples. The Antarctic Exposition, they did the same distance every day where Scott only went out in good weather. And when it was good weather, he'd hammer his team till they fell over. But um, the Scandinavian guy just did the same distance day after day and he got there first. So for me, one foot in front of the other. I think another thing that someone said, this was actually a friend of mine who unfortunately lost one of his children, is that you're only dealt the cards that you can deal with. And a real, put real faith in that and a real belief in that, that if you couldn't deal with what's being thrown at you, it wouldn't be thrown at you. I think I've also got a lot better asking for help and receiving help um, and doing that from a number of sources, friends, family and professional help. And all that together, to me, it's about building my resilience as a person, not just my resilience in training. Having said that, I do remember being introduced to this concept of resilience in training by a triathlon coach by the name of Steve True. I remember being on a training camp with him in Mallorca and we were all doing an open water swim and we jumped in off the pontoon and swam about 50 meters. And then he yelled, stop, stop. And we all had to throw our goggles back onto the pontoon. And we said, well, what we're we doing this for? And he said, well, what are you gonna do when your goggles get ripped off swimming around the first boy? Needs practice. So I really remember that because to me, that was the first time that someone had suggested that you train for situations that may not happen, but may happen. But when they happen, they could have a big effect on your performance. So, um, Building my resilience for the Lakeland 50 was about wearing the kit I was gonna wear, carrying the pack I was gonna carry with the things in that I was gonna need for the race over the terrain I was gonna race over. And I think that was really key to me having the confidence to stand on that start line, knowing that I had a good chance to make it to the finish line if my injuries held up, which they did. <laughs> Mercifully and... Yeah. What's clear from speaking to you as well, Jolie, is that there's no true separation between the person and the performer, and that resilience can indeed fluctuate. So final question, really. Do you feel then that it's dependent on your behaviours and your environment? Absolutely, 100%. And I know people talk about your personal pie chart and how are the different factors. And I think for me, if you take all the factors and everyone's pie chart's different because everyone has different things going on in their lives and different factors. For me, if any one of those is off, then my resilience is affected. So if my children are having a difficult time at school, my resilience is affected. If I'm feeling a bit unwell, my resilience is affected. If work's not going well, my resilience is affected. If my sister's having a difficult time, my resilience is affected. So absolutely all those factors play into my overall resilience. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Jolie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy. Enjoy.